just just a bit crazy and, and then you know it's just that time where you're kind of figuring out what is going to go on you know i think everyone you know is in the same kind of deal you know where um, you know you've got the family you've got the golden feed you've got the mortgage you've got the whole show what's going to happen this is the deep in the weeds podcast i'm anthony huckstep We all know that one of the joys of traveling is experiencing new cultures and cuisines. Whether home or abroad, food has become the major reason for traveling, but the global pandemic put an end to all travel, home and abroad. What's happened to the regions reliant on tourism? What's happened to the restaurants that rely on tourists as their main clientele? Spencer Patrick is the owner of Taste Port Douglas and the co-owner of Harrison's situated inside the Sheridan Resort. Spencer, how are you going? I'm good, Anthony. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for joining us. Um, You're way up there in warm North Queensland. It's a little bit colder down south in Canberra here, so I'm a bit envious of that. But um, (laughs) you've definitely had some challenging times over the last couple of months for a region and restaurant that's reliant on tourists. Um, can you tell us about how the pandemic sort of affected you at the beginning when the when the restaurants got closed down? Yeah, for sure. So, um, as you said, I've um, got Harrison's Restaurant within the Sheraton um, there, and uh, also I'm consultant over the whole F and B there too. So, you know, when the call got made, I think it was, was it um, was it the 24th, wasn't it? Um, that was that thing. That was the D Day. And we all got um, called in and said, that's it. <laughs> Restaurants close, everything's done. So um, that was it. So, yeah, so it's just, just, just a crazy time. It's just like one big kind of surreal bad dream, right? Yeah. What was the impact? Um, how many staff were we talking about? And, you know, what, what actually happened at that time? Yeah, well, Harrison's has always been a small kitchen, so we had about five five chefs, including me in there, and, um, and the Sheraton as a whole, I think there's about 30 chefs in there. So, you know, it's, it's pretty, pretty big. Um, and so, yeah, we just had to close the restaurant straight away until further notice. So, um, you know, all the staff had to be stood down and, uh, you know, fridges unpacked and turned off and... Yeah, just just a bit crazy, and and then you know it's just that time where you're kind of figuring out what is going to go on. You know, I think everyone, you know, is in the same kind of um, same kind of deal. You know, where um, you know you've got a family, you got, you got the golden feed, you got the mortgage, you got the whole show. What's going to happen? And speaking to you know myself and Paul Baker, you know, we phoned around everyone and doing the kind of are you okay thing and seeing then something feeling about other people's perspectives and what they're going through and are they going to be all right etc and you know as, as chefs i think as whole we're, as, as a whole we're pretty pretty uh, thick-skinned and uh, we, we can always see um <laughs> how to get that fight done and and, and look ahead and, and see any kind of hole that can be reached and, and pop your head up you know what have you done in this uh, period to adjust? Um, did you ha- did you switch to any sort of different trading model to get income, or has the restaurant just been closed this whole time? No, it's, it's been closed this whole time up until um, 
last Thursday when we actually reopened it again. Um, so there, there was no customers um, at the Sheraton at all. It's still on single-figure occupancy. So there generally wasn't any trade. And, and I know a few places in, um, in Port Douglas that were doing the takeaway thing. But, you know, that everything is linked to tourism in some way around here, as you know. And so everyone's affected. So, yeah, people were uh, trying to do the takeaway thing. But, you know, even the um, locals didn't, didn't really have any money. So it's that kind of swimming against the tide kind of thing. And, you know, a, a big round of applause to people giving it a, a go. Um, but, you know, it's very, very hard. What's it feel like up in that region? You know, as we sort of just mentioned, you're very reliant on tourists. You know, what's the sentiment been there? Is it what's the and the future of of that for the town? Uh, the future, you know, I think I think it's going to be strong when it gets to when they open the borders, of course. But when it when it gets to September and the second school holidays and stuff, I think it's going to be okay. Um, but right now. Um, everyone's you know they're opening up they can put 20 people inside the usual thing of their social distancing and people are trying to work out how they're um, going to make it work because the landlords are still wanting the same rent the income is going to be less you know it's um it's a hard one suppliers aren't delivering well they're delivering very regularly if at all um and yeah it's a hard one what's your feeling about the border closures at the moment um, my feeling is it's a tough one because, you know, if they open up the borders, <laughs> everything's going to be cool. But if there's a second wave and they have got to shut it all down again, that's going to be even worse, right? Absolutely. So what do you think is the right move in that regard? I think we should leave it for a month or so, see if any of these um, protests and and um, all those gatherings have made a difference and then take it from there. But I know most people around here want to get these borders open and get business running um, to the new new normal. Um, but I reckon we should just hold on tight and see. Because if, if there is a second wave and the borders get closed again, then that will um, completely ruin the second school holidays, it will completely ruin the Christmas break, the whole show. And then um, there'll be some serious trouble. How have you felt during this period, you know, with the whole industry kind of forced to shut down and, you know, many restaurants will be closing across the country? You know, how have you personally been coping with this situation? Yeah, well, you, you know, I'm quite well connected. We've got lots of friends all over the country and uh, the industry and obviously abroad in London and stuff. And, um, yeah, it's just hard, you know, people who, especially the, the kind of fine dining, the people who are given all their passion and integrity to their to their thing you know they're they're hurting because the, the margin wasn't there anyway and it's going to be even less there now when um when these places reopen so you know all that passion and all that um emotion um can be for nothing and they're, they're trying to get the places reopen and i hope they do i hope they're successful but it's just just hard you know Especially with the, um, with the with the actual ones who own the business too. You know that accent of yours doesn't sound very uh, North Queenslander. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're from the UK originally. Have you had contact with people back home and and what's going on back there? Have you had discussions with anyone in the industry? Yeah, a few few people who are um, in central London. Um, my family as well, obviously, and it's very hard. They're um, 
there's uh, lots of places closed. The Lebri just announced they're closing until further notice as well, as you know, which is insane, right? And it's these, these restaurants, these, cause, you know, the London restaurants are quite, apart from the, the big ones like the old Quags and stuff like that, they're, they're quite small places, right? They've got quite small dining rooms. So, the, you know, the, the Gordon Ramsay's and the Lebri's and stuff, they, you know, they only hold that 40, 50 covers, right? So social distancing cannot work. So all those kind of places will um, will not reopen until further notice until, until uh, it is business as usual. Otherwise, it's just no point, right? Yeah. How does... Uh, um young kid from the UK end up in North Queensland. Can you tell us how you got into chefing and, and how you ended up in Port Douglas? Yeah, yeah, the story. Wow. Um, so yeah, I've been cooking for about um, 35 years now. Uh, I don't know where that's gone. But um, I started off in uh, Middle England working in Raleigh chateaus and, and stuff and I was about 17, like Raymond Blancs and the Hamilton Halls, you know, those Michelin-style places, which are beautiful, all uh, produce and poacher-driven, you know, um, which was absolutely fantastic. And then um, I used to nip down to London, do stages at Nico's and all that sort of stuff. Remember Nico at 90 back then and all those kind of places. Um, and then um, I um, just cold called Marco when he, would, he just kind of opened uh, the restaurant Marco Pierre White in at the Hyde Park Hotel and um, I was a kind of chef de party junior sous chef kind of level then and so you know young a bit cocky kind of thing <laughs> and um, he says yeah I'll, I'll, I'll give you a job and there's me being very private school looking and uh, walking to a kitchen full of skinheads with tattoos and, <laughs> <laughs> and, and yeah, I had to keep my head down quite a bit. But, um, but yeah, that was a, a good, hard three years working there. Um, they got um, uh, three Michelin, that was when he had two stars. It was just straight after Harvey's. And so they had two stars and they moved on to three. So I was there during that time. I would say it was because of me, but, you know, being part of that was absolutely amazing. <laughs> And, um, you know, it was the youngest brigade in the world. We got lots of attention and uh, we all felt very proud and it was very cool, um, but very hard. And then um, I kind of progressed up the ladder and then uh, it was when Marco was taking over London and he had um, Quivadis, he had um, Criterion, uh, Mirabelle and all that kind of stuff. Do you remember those restaurants? Yeah. Yeah, so um, I and the Cafe Royal Grill Room, which is an amazing uh, dining room, and he asked me to, um, or pretty told me to go in and run it. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, he goes, this is yours, you run it, it's your show. I was like, okay, so, Jesus. So uh, I was 25 at the time, and um, and so, you know, I'd been working at, working under the man for a while, who used to call him the boss, and uh, and then so I came up with this menu, um and uh, kind of evolved evolved my cuisine, as it were. You know, I was pretty pretty young back then, but you know, I, th I thought I had my my kind of style. Uh, but it was basically um, you know a mixture between um, you know the country manoir cooking um, and um, um, and Marco and stuff. Do you know what I mean? So it's lots of assiettes and lots of uh, foie gras and lots of truffles and. Um, Pump and Sam in the restaurant with duck a la press and crepes that stand at the table. So I kind of brought back 
all that kind of stuff, which is really, really cool. And the, and the, the actual dining room is amazing. It was, um, it was a red velvet kind of room with caterids and silver and gold everywhere. Oscar Wilde held court there uh, <laughs> when he was alive. And yeah, it was one of those. And there's even a dome put over the top of it, a concrete dome put over the top of the restaurant. So it's protected during the world wars and stuff. Just amazing. So, um, so that was really cool, and um, I got a Mission Star there when um, when <laughs> Mission Stars really, really did count. Remember that, <laughs> and um, and and that was um, that was great. So it's great for me, great for the team, all that kind of stuff. And then the year after, we got um, one Mission Star again, but we got the, uh, the the four knife, four knives and forks, the red ones. So, I mean, we were on the way to get in two, which was great. And then uh, the restaurant got closed down so I wasn't making enough money by Marco's business partner. So we were like, fuck. Um, and then um, uh, after that, I went to be head chef at the Mirabel for uh, just over a year and a half. And then I was head chef at Quivadis. And then I kind of, um, which is all cool, mixing the stars in each one. And... Um, and then I kind of left and went to Cambridge and opened up a little place there. But I was a bit bored of England, so um, I got in touch with an agency and um, I wanted to do a bit of travelling. Didn't have a girlfriend, just a suitcase and some knives and um, a bit of cash in the back pocket. And uh, there was uh, three jobs available. There's one in Moscow, um, which didn't really fit right. There was... Um, Soho House in New York, which is just about to open on the, the Meatpacking District, and there was the Phoenix, uh, which is Raymond's uh, Raymond Capaldi's place. Yeah, and so I spoke to um, um, Curtis, who um, worked for me for about three. Curtis Stone worked for me about for about three years, and Shannon, I worked with the Shannon Bennett at uh, Marcos as well. So we all kind of knew each other. I uh, had connections in in Melbourne. And um, they said, oh, you know, Raymond, we're going to put a good word in for you. And so I yeah, got the job there. And um, I remember landing in, um, in um, Melbourne, I think it was the 5th of August, and me being a naive Englishman, I thought it was going to be like a, a larger Byron Bay. There'd be blondes with surfboards in the airport, <laughs> suntans. And, I th and, it was, and when I arrived, it was cold in London. I was like, oh, my God. Awful. Um, <laughs> but um, And then uh, Keda Kedis was... Um, uh, mum put me up just near the airport and um, so I had I'd borrowed Curtis's um, uh, grandfather's old Subaru car to drive into this city bear in mind in London I you know I used to drive a Porsche and all that kind of stuff and then it's very nice being looked off but it's all different I kept getting lost in um, in a central um, Melbourne and not taking those hook turns right all that kind of stuff and the car kept on breaking down I was like oh my god it's so stressful and um, so so and then uh, and then Raymond Capaldi is well you know I was, uh, I was his head chef for, for a while and you know he's a very very dear friend of mine now um, and then yeah and then I met my wife-to-be Raina who you've met before Anthony yeah and we decided to pack some bags and travel around Australia and we traveled clockwise and just followed the sun and and just found you know out the, how amazing your country is here and you're good being a chef obviously for, you see where all the vineyards are and all the produce comes from seasonally etc and you know just just amazing and we got to um yeah we stayed in Margaret river for a few months broom for a few months and and you know stopped in between obviously and just camped and had great time playing uno and drinking wine <laughs> <laughs> and um and then um we ended up in port douglas and and Raina found herself um pregnant and and we were sitting outside um, 
a cafe. And I said, hey, do, do you like it here? And she goes, I do. And I said, do you want to live here? And she goes, I do. <laughs> so that's it. And so we set up shop and um, our firstborn, uh, we found out it's going to be a, um, a boy beforehand. And we said, okay, let's call him Harrison. And we opened up Harrison's. And... Um, and that's it. Reaper and was pregnant on the floor. I was working at the back, and I was doing foie gras with um, <laughs> with peeled grapes and uh, and all that kind of stuff, and crepes cassettes and Chateaubriands and all that kind of jazz. And uh, and yeah, it was great. We got a hat, and we we you know, which were pretty unexpected. It was just a real little rundown place, but we we made it home. And then um, and then the rest is history. We opened up another Harrison's, as you know, down the road, and we had Bucci, Bucci in Brisbane. And now we're at uh, the Sheraton, which is a, a nice home, a bit, bit more classy. <laughs> what is it about North Queensland that uh, makes it such a good place to have a restaurant? Um, I don't think it's a good place to have a restaurant. I think it's a bloody nightmare because <laughs> it's, so, it's so seasonal. I'm there all the time like, oh, my God, what are we doing? Um, it's just I like it being from England. It's constantly warm. I mean, we get cold now when it goes down to 18 degrees. Um, it's unique. I've always loved wildlife and stuff being a, you know, as a kid. And it's, it is just an amazing place. Um, lots of community here as well, which I love. We're very fortunate. We, we live opposite the ocean. We've got the river at the back and, you know, we've got three lovely kids. And, and I, th- I think it's, it's, I don't think I know it's about the kids now. It's about the future. It's about making memories and stuff and, it's yeah, it's just it's just good, you know. Now, um, you also own Taste Port Douglas, which you know celebrates everything in the region and has the community celebrating with you. Um, what's been the impact on that? Because you know, big events can't happen at the moment. Um, and and what what's the future of that looking like? Yeah, so we we put it on hold for two years, and uh, funny enough, it was supposed to go ahead this August <laughs> as a relaunch, and uh, we were even going to give you rings if you wanted to come again, again, be be a part. Um, and we'd go, <laughs> we'd got it all sorted. We had the the um, the talent list all ready to go. Um, it's going to be based um, at the actual Sheraton, and um, and it's, it's basically upping the game of the. F&B of Sheraton um, nationwide and um, and it's, it's going to be absolutely fantastic but we are going to be doing it again next year um, 21 in August so you know we've got we have 20 chefs on the on the list and all using all the local produce and nice stuff it's pretty, it's pretty cool I love it it's um it's really kind of down-to-earth festival um, as you know, it's, it's all about the community and putting Port Douglas and the region on the pedestal it deserves. And all, yeah, it's, it's good. I mean, most people, when they come up here or they think about Tropical North, they think about mangoes and mud crabs and coral trout, right? But it, there's so much more up here. There's a huge food bowl up in the table lands, and it's all, all very seasonal. It's great. It's unique. It's awesome. What's some of the local produce that you get excited about that perhaps people wouldn't expect? Um, I like I like the I like it already around Christmas time. All the stone fruits come in, all the different varieties of sapotes and all that kind of stuff, which is really cool. Um, really, really good for you as well. All that kind of stuff is all ripened by the sun, you know, because it's so warm and so kind of humid. You can just tell all the. Um, <laughs> the juiciness and the sweetness of everything, and then and then we move into um, 
the colder times when all the citrus is available now, which I absolutely love, you know, all the pomelos and and all the, you know, all the finger limes and all that kind of stuff. So so all through the, um, the 12 months, I think news popping up. I mean, I always go to a market, which is a true um, farmer's market in um, Mossman. It's only small, but, you know, you always find new, new things every time you're there. You know, what's this? And, oh, I'll taste it and blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, so it's, it's quite hard to do an actual whole a la carte menu, which will survive for, you know, six weeks or so from some produce. But it's really good to bring it back, inspire the kids in the kitchen and, and create specials and, and all that kind of stuff, you know. How much has your cooking and cuisine changed since living up there? Um, quite a lot. I've been through a couple of stages up here. Um, as I said, I did a, when I first came up here, I did the classic French, which was pretty heavy, but that's all I knew, do you know what I mean? And, you know, you can't pretend to really completely change yourself when that's all you've done. Um, and so, you know, I was trying to use local produce as much as possible, but I just didn't understand it. But then, um, you know, when I had time, I'd go to the markets and speak to people and stuff. And then and then I started to get into um, indigenous stuff, you know, nowhere near as, as much as uh, as Jock. But, um, you know, my the menu did become mainly indigenous and using all the breadfruits and wrapping things in paper bark and, you know, using all the spices and the herbs and stuff, which people don't know about. And I was getting really kind of excited about that because it's new to me, learning something. Uh, refreshing and then I thought is this is cool but is this really me is it am I just excited because it's a fad and it was a fad for me um, so now I've I've found what my cuisine is and it's um, now it's kind of stuff that brings me memories from the UK but inspired also by using local ingredients do you know what I mean so I can change things up a little bit um, and then it kind of makes sense because all all the all your food, especially when you when you get older like me, I think it's got to make sense. Otherwise, it's not worth it. It's got to have a story, right? Yeah. What still excites you about restaurants and hospitality? Oh, what excites me? Um, big question, really. I think I think over the last few years, Mike Simon has been diluted a bit with with restaurants because I know how much there is. The, you know the old days when you used to go to Le Gavroche in London and have a long lunch and and it's just amazing and you know the head chef would come come out and you got three waiters to your table and all that kind of stuff and flambéing to me that that is dining I love that it's an experience and and every single time you lunch or dine like that you will never forget that experience right um but I think in recent years it has been diluted a bit and that pure um, electric classic experience has, has gone a little bit or a lot um, there's obviously the margins are not there anymore so people are careful about staffing um, you know front of house as well um, yeah so it's I don't think it's as grand as it used to be uh, I know people are going to change with the times I like going to places now which are busy and funky and to me it's about the overall complete package of um of um i think so met me and the family in sydney before all this happened we went to mr wong's and we thought that was amazing so that encompasses everything you could have been in shanghai right um you know the kids loved it i loved it the the, the food um 
is it, it is what it is but it's um it encompasses what the whole restaurant the whole story is about you know um but a, a real huge theme um to me the best restaurant is um my home here i just love cooking great food putting it in the middle of the table opening a nice bottle of wine and um and enjoying and bringing a restaurant into my home i, I love doing that now well maybe you can invite some of us to your home for that experience <laughs> yeah yeah and you, and you know i think it, i think it's great for the kids as well because because we every single saturday we we have um we have a brunch and we just fill the table full of great stuff we got from the market you know fresh avocados you know, and all that kind of stuff and and uh fruit salads and great things and then and then we decide which country we're going to go to on the sunday and we go oh, let's go to um <laughs> let's go to france eh? and then i'll do um you know comfy duck i'll make some parfait to begin with we'll have tatan for dessert and stuff like that and we'll uh, we'll go to bloody dan murphy's to get wines that match and and we sit there for four hours and and have a great time we don't have to drive it's phenomenal and and you know to to get that kind of experience and the stuff in in a, in a restaurant and and um, it's quite hard these days, I think. You know. Do you think what you you'll do with the restaurant will change as we move forward because of this situation? It's a funny one because now I'm in the hotel. It's I'm quite fortunate. It's in a bit of a bubble, if you know what I mean. Um, so we've got some serious rules to stick to. I mean, we just started having to have to wear um, masks and gloves. Everyone front and back has got to wear them, which is quite obtrusive for for the guests and they, they they don't really get it but it's just the way um you know as the hotel gets busier we'll get busier and we, we we get lots of support from from in town as well and um and around the area but i don't know will it change um i hope not i really hope not I've, i always see the brighter things and um i think it's going to be okay do you think you've changed, you know, has there been positives to come out of this sort of setback? Mm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we, we had the kids at home, all three kids and dog and two cats. Um, I remember in the middle of it all, I went and uh, I had a meeting in town for about three hours and that's the longest I was away from the family for a while. So, you know, it's, we... We coped with it very, very well. You know, we're very lucky, as I said before, you know, taking the dog for a walk all the time on the beach opposite, and it's, it's been great. And what what I think we've taken from it, what I want to know we've taken from it, is, um, you know, life's too short and you've got to stick close to your family, right? And, and create those memories, and work is great, but um, family comes first. Well, uh, when you do, when the borders do open again and... You know, you have a big influx of people up there again. Um, how are you going to feel? Are you going to be cautious and nervous about it or do you think it will be a real time to celebrate? A uh, bit of both, really. A bit of both. I think um, to see, see the town flourish again, seeing those uh, big dive boats going out and everyone, um, you know, bouncing back, I think that's a true time to celebrate. Um, but then, yeah... Just got to be careful, right, and, and make sure um, that all these rules are adhered to, and just see what happens and keep those fingers crossed. When uh, when the borders are open and you get to travel again, you know, um, where are you going to go, and what's what would be your ideal 
restaurant experience outside of Queensland? Ooh, tricky one. Very, very tricky. Um, well, firstly, we need to go down to Melbourne to see um, all the families, all Rainer's families down there, brothers and, and young kids and stuff. Um, restaurant experience. Wow. You know what? I'm going to go down to um, and see Donovan cook at Rhine. Oh, sounds nice. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, because I have never been to his place, and um, and he is uh, he's a great man, and um, you know we're from the same stables, and it would be good. That's where I'd like to go. Well, it's recorded now, so you're going to have to. It's uh, he'll probably hold hold you to that now. <laughs> <laughs> You mentioned a little earlier um, your love of the wildlife, you know, and you're surrounded by some serious wildlife up there in North Queensland. You know, is there a wildlife story that you tell to scare the relatives and friends back home about Australian wildlife at all? <laughs> um, well, I tell you, on my next door neighbour is called Juan Walker, and he is um, he's part of the uh, walker family and they're the you know the the landowners basically and he's really 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 cool and um i've known him for years and where the ocean is in front of us we've got mangroves to the to the right and uh we go out he's got these um tours as well called walkabout tours um and he does very very well and he's he, by the way he's struggling so he needs to get some uh, some tours going um but he, he makes his own spears and um and he takes tours out there i've done a bit of tv with this as well and it's it is really cool and uh, what we do in the in the shallows we practice throwing these spears and then we walk out a little bit we don't go deeper than our knees and we try and uh, get some rays um, and some blue swimmer crabs. And then one's got this thing where he, he catches a ray and um, he always carries a, a backpack with him, puts um, the backpack in, um, in um, sorry, the ray in the backpack. But before he does that, he cuts the barb off. So the barb's probably about uh, two, three centimeters on these rays. Mm. And then he, he, he shoves the barb through his um, T-shirt to get any of the um, poison off and then he just shoves it in his pocket and um, and then so he's got a ray in there and then we go into the, then we go into the mangroves the mangroves are absolutely amazing it's it's like the time forgotten and he he talks about all these stories where you know back in the day the the indigenous would send their kids into the uh, mangroves to get all tangled up and have a bit of rough and tumble and that will tire them out right because because it's uh, really, really quite treacherous in there and then we'd get in there and we'd go um um uh, mangrove um uh, mangrove hunting we'd, we'd get um um, crabs, mud crabs, and we go for these mussels as well. I call them mangrove mussels. And um, I think you were there at Tasteport Douglas, where, you, where we had the opening at the um, Sheraton, and we had that, those fires. Were you there that year? I was, yeah. I was just reminiscing when you were talking about it. Yeah, yeah and when Darren and Mark were there, and we had all those mangrove mussels there, which um, which the local uh, kids um, picked for us, and they're absolutely beautiful. I don't know whether you remember, they're just they, you know, they're, they're really thick shelled. Um, you pop them open on the fire, and they're just so pure, and and they're, they're actually buried deep in the um, in the mangroves. So you think they'd be really kind of gritty soil, and you'd have to purge them, but 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 you don't. They're absolutely beautiful, and then. Um, and then we go um, um, mud crab hunting, and uh, Juan can he even talks to the nature when he's walking through <laughs> in, in in his language. It's absolutely amazing. 
and then we get winkles and that kind of stuff. And he puts everything in, 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 in his backpack and then we um, go back and uh, we have a bit of a cook-up. So there's also um, one of his family members who joins us and I call him the fire starter and, and he can start a fire without a lighter within like two minutes. It's just bloody amazing. And um, so, so then we we get paper bark and all that kind of stuff, and and we put on the the mud crabs first, males only, obviously, and um, then we you know stack it all up with the mussels and all that sort of thing, and then um, and then we eat, we eat, and then, and then sorry, then the um, the ray, we cook the ray, we kind of that kind of gets steamed in a banana leaf, um, but we just use the wings. And what he uses to cut the wings off is the barb. So the barb is serrated, right? So he actually cuts the meat, he cuts the wing off the um, off the uh, off the ray with that. It's just ingenious, absolutely ingenious. And he and he brings along this um, pickled um, chili kind of vinegar, which is um, which is Nana makes, and we dress everything at that, and and we eat. But. Um, but I always, always say, you asked about the dangerous things, but the dangerous things are the crocodiles. There's lots of crocodiles here now, more so than there used to be. But there's an island called Snapper Island, which you can see on the left-hand side of, of our beach. And the actual, it, it looks like a peninsula, but it's not. It's actually a detached island. And um, it looks like a crocodile right, in, in the water with his snout up and his, and his uh, rounded head. And they call it Snapper Island. And this is supposed to be um, produce a spirit which protects the indigenous from crocodiles. And um, they look, kind of looks over their shoulder and uh, makes sure they're okay. So, you know, there's all these dream time um, uh, stories as well. And the best time to get mud crabs in the full moon because they go into the mangroves looking for all the ladies <laughs> and all this stuff. But it, it's, it, it is truly magical up here. Mate, I can see why you're living up there. It's extraordinary. And um, I can't wait to get up there again for another taste, Port Douglas. It's such a beautiful place on the planet. Uh, mate, good luck. Hopefully they open the borders soon and you get a big influx of people uh, enjoying your um, beautiful cooking again. And um, thanks for joining us. Lovely to talk to you. Thanks. Bye-bye. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's HOSPO community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.